You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In addition to the pending cases in Florida, Gabby's parents are in the process of filing a lawsuit against the Moab Police Department. How's it going? How are you doing? Relating to how they handled that domestic violence stop with Gabby and Brian. Attorney Brian Stewart. The family believes that Gabby would still be alive today if the police officers had had the proper training and had followed the law in how they responded to Gabby's situation. Hey, how are you? According to Stewart, the body cam footage shows there was a fundamental problem. The very best thing I can do is call my supervisor and see if I'm missing something here. It's clear that the officers did not have a clear understanding of the law that they were supposed to enforce that day. Try to calm down and I'm going to go call a supervisor. The Moab Police Department commissioned the captain of another Utah Police Department to conduct that independent review of the officers' actions that day. Among the report's conclusions, there was probable cause for an arrest. By choosing not to apply the statute and effect an arrest, the officers left Gabby and Brian in a dangerous situation. The report cited other unintentional mistakes, says Mary Fulgeniti. They didn't follow up with a key witness, which is the 911 caller. They did not follow up with questions to Brian Landry about whether or not he grabbed her face or grabbed her arm. They didn't document Gabby's wounds photographically or in the report. Mary Fulgeniti believes they also missed some classic telltale signs of domestic violence. And here was a girl who was hysterically crying, who was immediately taking the blame who was also trying to minimize her boyfriend's actions. All of this while he remained calm, cool, and collected through his interview. So I think if you look at that in the totality, and had all those things been addressed, we might have had a different outcome here. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Just when you think you've heard everything about Gabby's case, along comes an episode like the last one, right? I have heard from some of you about the impact the last episode has had on you. It blew your minds. And also for some of you, it made you cry. Tears of relief, of being validated and being seen. I see you. And I won't stop advocating for women and children. Part of that advocacy is crime analyst. Being your voice and amplifying best practice for everyone to hear, no matter how hard or how uncomfortable it is. 
You see, I can reach far more people on this platform than I can in classrooms. That's not to say I'm not doing classroom-based masterclasses and keynote speeches, because I am, I'm doing that too. But I can reach far more people using my podcast and TV shows, and that's exactly why I do it. And a big shout out to all the professionals listening, taking notes and using this to get better, to do better and to be better. I see you too, burning the midnight oil to do your work and keep upskilling yourself in the margins of work and family life. And it's not always an easy balancing act. I know because I'm there too. So please keep amplifying me by messaging me on all the socials. You'll see them all in the show notes, Share me with family, friends and co-workers, or even complete strangers, as I did yesterday. I finished delivering my keynote speech, Preventing Murder in Slow Motion Coercive Control, at the International Coercive Control Conference. And a big shout out to the 293 people who attended my keynote address, and also to my five crime analyst listeners who won places in my giveaway. Well, afterwards, I walked into a coffee shop to be confronted by a crime junkie sweatshirt-clad server. I asked her whether she had heard of Crime Analyst, and she said no. She rushed off, and I thought I'd upset her, but she came back with her phone in her hand and looked Crime Analyst up. She said she'd listen, and I also told her about Real Crime Profile too. I asked her her name, and she said it was Jasmine, and one of her colleagues said, oh, this is right up your street. He said, oh, you listen to True Crime. And I said, well, definitely listen to Crime Analyst and to Real Crime Profile and let me know what you think. So shout out to Jasmine if you're listening. I can't wait for the day that I walk into a coffee shop and someone's wearing a Crime Analyst shirt, a sweater, a hat, a baseball cap, whatever it might be. I would lose it. Crime Junkie is huge as a podcast. It's become a movement of sorts. Imagine if Crime Analysts were that big and what impact that would have for victims and survivors. People being educated about coercive control and stalking and the victim POV. Using expert analysis about abusers and how to see through their BS and hold them to account. Now that would be a game changer. That's my aspiration. And this crime analyst can dream and aspire to that, hey? You have to dream it and manifest it. And of course, you have to do the work to make the magic happen. And I'm determined that it will, with the help of all of you. So share me and pass it on. And some great news that I want to share with you all is that I've been doing the work across three main countries. And today, October the 13th, Queensland in Australia announced coercive control will be criminalised. And so my dream of global change and improvement for women and children is slowly happening. Emphasis on slowly. And I'm happy about that. And the announcement was serendipitous because I just finished talking about the presentation that I gave to the Coercive Control Alliance in Queensland when I was pregnant. And this was the genesis and starting point to this announcement. I remember it clearly. And I give a lot of keynotes and a lot of addresses and a lot of training sessions. I'm involved in many all across the world. But this one in particular, I stayed up late for to give my evidence about why coercive control should be criminalised. And I was heavily pregnant at the time, and that's why I also remember it. And this was important for me to do, to show the evidence to colleagues in Australia. And I'm proud of that. So well done, Queensland. 
And yes, there's still much more to do to ensure that coercive control is defined accurately and that the law is drafted to be the best law that it can be, learning from us in England and Wales, as well as from Scotland. But this really is good news. This is progress. Also, as part of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, don't forget that you can get 10% off all Crime Analyst merch across October. So go treat yourself and a friend, and maybe I'll see you one day wearing my merch, and I'll be very happy to selfie it up with you. Okay, back to Gabby. Here's the trigger warning for this episode. This episode and series may be triggering, and it will be angry-making, and so listener discretion is advised. And of course, it's worth mentioning again, do read the 99-page investigative review report, because it is quite something. Well, something and nothing. So the clip that you heard at the top of the episode, that was Mary Fulgeniti, a former federal prosecutor, explaining that the police officers missed the signs that Gabby was the victim, and that they failed to consider the totality of circumstances. And if they had, there may have been a different outcome. I 100% believe that to be true, as you know. Also, do you remember early on in an episode of Crime Analyst, and I believe it was the Forgotten Victims series, that I shared with you what my old boss, Detective Chief Superintendent Johnny Godsave, would say to officers that he supervised when he believed they were fobbing him off with the we're so busy governor? And yes, in the Met when I was there, it really was a governor this, gov that, sir this and sir that, That was the environment. But back to Johnny Godsave, he'd say, busy? We can all busy ourselves being busy. But are you busy with the right things? This still rings in my head more than a decade later and exemplifies my own thoughts about the officers that are the subjects of this review and the review itself. For example, Neither Officer Robbins nor Pratt spoke to the person who called 911 or got a statement. We know that. But what became apparent from the review was that Officer Robbins didn't realise that Christopher was not the 911 reporter. That's astounding to me. This is such a basic error with profound consequences. To not clarify this from the start with four attending officers at the scene underlines what Johnny Godsave always drummed into us. The standard operating procedures are there for a reason, and when you decide to ignore them and go off-piste, as I call it, you better be a good skier. I use this skiing analogy because you have no business going off-piste, off the groomed runs, if you don't have a good basic skill set. The fact that this routine aspect of the investigation was missed inspires very little confidence in all else, quite frankly. The 911 reporter was important and most likely would have further reinforced the fact that Brian was the abuser. However, when Captain Ratcliffe interviewed Officer Pratt and asked him directly about this, Officer Pratt said he didn't think taking a statement from the 911 caller would have impacted the decision that he took on the day. Again, this is another bad take. He didn't know and still doesn't know what the 911 caller had to say, and more to the point, he never will know. But sadly, I do concede that Officer Pratt may well be right about this, because from everything I've seen, with my own eyes and read, Officer Pratt's mind was made up, and nothing was going to change that. In other words, he did not have an open mind, 
which is an epic failure as an investigator. But sure, go ahead and promote him. Makes perfect sense in the police world, but not to anyone outside of it. Officer Pratt failed Gabby in every way. He failed to understand the power imbalance and that Brian was manipulating all of them. He never created a real opportunity for Gabby to disclose. The one opportunity he did create when she told him Brian grabbed her around the mouth, he sabotaged by interrupting her. He prevented her from getting into flow. And after she disclosed, rather than active listening and reflective listening and acknowledging what she said, validating her by saying it must have been scary for her. Instead of doing that, he changed the subject. What he should have done was ask her to step out the car after she'd finished speaking so he could take photos and document her injuries. That's what he should have done. But he didn't do any of that. He changed the subject, which was the equivalent to changing the channel. I train officers on this all the time. What it amounts to is basic communication skills and asking risk-related questions in a trauma-informed way. Also, in my opinion, Officer Robbins got it right at the beginning of the police stop. He separated them and spoke with Gabby, but then he locked Gabby away in his vehicle and spent all his time with Brian. And this action spoke volumes, and Officer Pratt steered Officer Robbins off course, in my opinion. Gabby was alone and isolated. She was kept in the dark and starved of information about what was happening, which no doubt made it even more distressing and scary for her. This is exactly how victims are re-traumatised, and it's secondary victimisation. Gabby never had a voice or felt safe to disclose. This is why advocates are so important, and they do need to attend the call-out with police. And Officer Pratt then wrote up his report stating no one reported that the male hit the female. Unbelievable. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, on the year anniversary since Gabby's body was discovered in September, a new witness has come forward and said Brian hit Gabby with a closed fist. This male witness, named Chandler, said Brian was the aggressor and hit Gabby in the head before she stumbled back against the van and that he shouted over to try and spook the guy and that others had called 911 so he didn't bother. 
Chandler told the Sun newspaper this, and I'll direct quote. I was just driving by in my truck. I saw them at the back of their vehicle. They were kind of yelling, and then Brian swung at her. I believe it was his left hand. It was kind of like a slapping motion, but with a closed fist. After, asked if it shocked him, Chandler said, Very much. I had to stop and think if I actually saw what I saw for a second. Recounting the shocking moment, he said, She fell a little bit into the side of the van. She definitely felt it. When she hit into the van, she pretty much hit her back and probably the back of her head. They started yelling back and forth for a second, and then Brian turned around and she chased after him. Chandler saw others intervening and calling 911, and so he thought it was being handled and drove off. He made an interesting point in the article. When asked how he feels about the Moab PD's conduct, he said, and I'll quote, The situation definitely could have been handled a lot differently from their standpoint. We live in a society where we're told nowadays, if you're violent, somebody's going to jail. They probably should have done more legally than just separate them for the night. From what I witnessed, it was definitely him being the aggressor. I don't think she should have been the one that was put as the aggressor. Okay, so in fairness to the police, Chandler didn't call 911, and this account only came to light in the last few weeks. Hence, it's not included in the review. But again, Chandler's account validates all that I've shared with you about Gabby being the victim. Also, he's right. People are led to believe that if you hurt another person or are violent to them, you will go to prison. There will be a consequence. Only when it's violence against women, something odd happens and suddenly it's difficult to arrest and charge and prosecute the male abuser. But when it's a female perpetrator, suddenly it's straightforward and the law is rigid. I've seen this play out across my career many, many times. I also believe Chandler's coming forward also underlines the importance of people calling things in. If you see something, say something, and please don't leave it to others. Also, bizarrely, on interview with Captain Ratcliffe, Officer Pratt said he didn't consider a man grabbing a woman's face as a hit or a strike, so he didn't see it as an assault, and I want to address this. You see, for me, this again further underlines that Officer Pratt doesn't understand behaviour or the Utah Code. In 2017, Utah recognised strangulation and or suffocation as an aggravated assault. Officer Pratt needs a reality check of how men hold power over women and how physiology and physicality matters. Sex matters. He needs training on this. Yet the recommendations made in this report are broad brush and don't even specify this. And I'll talk about the recommendations soon enough. Back to Officer Pratt. Noticeably, he's a big guy. He looks like he's over six foot. I doubt anyone has tried to put their hand over his mouth or nose or tried to strangle him. And if they tried, I doubt it would pose a threat to him, unless he were incapacitated. I think perhaps he needs to see this act demonstrated on a woman by a man to understand the full impact. We also know it increases the risk of serious harm and femicide sevenfold. Any hands around the face, throat or neck must be taken seriously. The act is all about control. Women get this, particularly if it's been done to them. Even Captain Ratcliffe got this. This is what he wrote on page 43 under the heading conclusion. 
Brian tried locking Gabby out of the van in an attempt to control her movements. Brian said he was trying to make, in inverted commas, Gabby calm down. And Gabby said she was trying to get Brian to stop telling her to shut up, in inverted commas. Based on the information provided, I can only assume the act of Brian grabbing Gabby's face was his attempt to make Gabby calm down or make her shut up. Although the act of grabbing someone's face, like in this case, rarely causes significant injury, I find that the specific act of grabbing someone's face is extremely personal, violent and controlling. All women would agree with this, and it's positive Captain Ratcliffe got it too. This was exactly the point which should have been further investigated, along with the fact Brian was controlling Gabby's movements. Neither of these important and instructive behaviours were on either officer's radar when they should have been. It's not rocket science. Really, it's not. Now, I said in the last episode, perhaps religion played a role, and I cannot negate that. It's been on my mind throughout this case and series. Utah is a Mormon state after all. In the 101 DV manual for police and prosecutors in Utah, it mentions religion. This is what it says in the manual about religious factors, and I'm going to quote directly. Historically, the wife is considered the property of her husband. Therefore, it's not surprising to find religious and legal approval of his physical force against her. The next bullet point reads, Scriptures do not condone the use of violence, but do encourage principles that can contribute to domestic violence if misconstrued, including justification by the abuser, and examples are cited like God punishes, God is male, man made in God's image, man punishes, a woman is made for the man, not the man for the woman. The next bullet point is male privilege. The man is to rule the household. The wife must submit to the man. The next bullet point is male leadership. Women to be silent in church, society and home. The next bullet point is adherence to rigid sex roles. The man earns the money and provides for the family and the woman is the homemaker having children. The next bullet point is family. The family must be preserved at all costs and the woman should keep the family together. It made me think about another case, a case that has really haunted me. The horrific murders of Brenda and Erica Lafferty in 1984 in Utah. Erica was Brenda's 15-month-old baby. They were brutally murdered together. And when I say brutal, I mean brutally slaughtered. I can't even imagine their final moments on this earth and how Brenda fought tooth and nail to protect her baby, as any mother would, and how terrified Erica must have been. We analysed Brenda and Erica's case on Real Crime Profile in a two-part series, episode numbers 392 and 393, and we also deconstructed the Hulu show, Under the Banner of Heaven. And I'm warning you, it's not an easy watch or listen. And like I said, this case haunts me to this day. I want you to hear what Brenda's father, Jim Wright, and Erica's grandfather had to say in the aftermath. Take a listen to this. New and exclusive at six tonight, the father and grandfather of the mother and child killed by one of Utah's most infamous killers. 
speaks one on one to us today. Brenda Wright Lafferty and her 15 month old daughter were killed by her brother in law, Ron Lafferty, and his brother Dan back in 1984. Two News Ron Berg grew up with Brenda and talked to her father after learning about the death of her killer. Back in my hometown to cover a story that began decades ago. Good to see you, man. Well, thank you for having us. Jim Wright is 85 years old now. I admired him as a kid and even more so now as we reflect on the unimaginable murders of his daughter Brenda and granddaughter Erica. It causes um, depression, anxiety, you know, a lot of sorrow. News of Ron Lafferty's death closes a chapter. A relief maybe in a way that that he had passed on naturally. Relief that there won't be the spectacle of an execution. He has even found a way to forgive. From the very beginning, um, as a family, we turned that over to the Lord and the law. Let, let them take care of it. And we wanted to get on with our own lives and not uh, be caught up in hate or things like that. Instead, the focus is on Brenda and Erica. She was quite a scrapbooker. Brenda grew up with five sisters and a brother, excelled in theater and music. She was in the Miss Twin Falls pageant. And was in TV news at BYU. Jim lights up with all the happy memories. That's a homemade one. He built this swing for all the kids. The kids got a lot of play on here, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they used to go across the top, hand over hand. 35 years ago, the gruesome murders made national headlines and shook the tiny town of Kimberly, Idaho, right to the core. Ever since, Jim has visited Brenda and Erica's grave almost every week. They laid Eric on Brenda's chest, and well, she just kind of like holding him. His wife, Lorray, who passed away a few years ago, is also here, and this is where he finds peace. How about you? Well. I, uh, right at first I was doing pretty good, but a couple of years after it happened, I, I, I had a real hard time. But Jim says he's moving forward with faith. Just a matter of going on with daily life and looking forward to the time when we can see them again. Ron Bird, 2 News in Twin Falls, Idaho. Your brother Dan Lafferty will remain in prison for the rest of his life. You heard Brenda's father talk about religion. Well, Brenda dared to question religion and patriarchy, and she paid the ultimate price with hers and her baby's life. Her ultimate sin, in Ron Lafferty's eyes, the man who killed them, was helping her sister-in-law, his wife and children to escape his violence and control. Brenda helped them because the abuse and violence was escalating, and her sister-in-law feared for her life and for her children's lives. Ron held Brenda responsible for his marriage breakdown, even though he were responsible. In my opinion, that was the motive behind him and his brother killing Brenda and Erica. It was a revenge killing, and other men participated because of the bro culture, and it was excused by religion. You see, men will use all sorts of justifications for brutalising, raping and killing women and children. I can't help but think about Iran and women and men protesting in the wake of Masa Amini's murder, where the morality police arrested Masa Amini for not having her headscarf on tight enough. 
It's insane that in 2022, men can target and arrest women for having their headscarves too loose or whatever trivial transgression they dream up, and that they can take a woman into custody and do whatever they want to her. And in Marsar's case, it resulted in her death, which the police passed off as heart failure, despite the fact she was 22 and didn't have a heart condition, and her being beaten was witnessed by others. Terrorising and killing women when we step out of line. It all comes down to the same thing, in my opinion. Wanting power and control over women. Male privilege, male entitlement, and wanting ownership and possession of women and our bodies and our minds. Like we are second-class citizens. And people say that there's no such thing as sex-based oppression. The Chilean capital Santiago was just one of many cities around the world where rallies were held on Saturday in solidarity with women in Iran. The movement was sparked by the death of Masa Amini, who died after being arrested by Iran's so-called morality police. Organizers said protests were being held in more than 150 cities, from Tokyo to San Francisco to London. One of the rallies was also in the Italian capital, Rome. With this regime, it's not possible to receive human rights, that's all. Now is the time for all of us to think that we have the ability to change this 43-year-long oppression. We don't want this government anymore. We don't want the Ayatollahs anymore. In Iran, protests were staged at many universities in anger at what happened to Masa Amini. The 22-year-old was detained for allegedly wearing her mandatory Islamic headscarf too loosely. She died in custody. The government denies any responsibility and labels protesters as rioters, arresting hundreds of them as a result. We should all be standing against it and in solidarity with women in Iran, as well as here in good old America, where men are making decisions about our bodies and making reproductive choices for us every day. It starts with that. And when it starts with that, where does it end? I do believe it will take a revolution to create real change. OK, I'm getting angry again. As it's so disgraceful how women are treated because we're women and because of our sex and we're not second-class citizens. So let's focus back on Gabby and Utah. In the DV101 manual, a diagram illustrates the internal and external factors contributing to domestic violence. At the centre of the wheel are male factors on one side and female factors on the other, and around the wheel there's listed religious factors, perpetrator justification, stress factors, physical factors, legal factors, social factors, and family origin factors. I want to highlight the male factors first. They list controlling, narcissistic, jealous and insecure, monopolises her time, emotionally immature, attitudes about women, raised in abusive home, alcohol drug abuse, critical and depressive, often a perfectionist, manipulative, threatening. At the top, it reads 90 to 96% of the abusers are male and the male factors are the profile of the abuser. Now I would tick all of them for Brian with the exception of alcohol and drug abuse and raised in an abusive home. I don't know about his home life. I do, however, have grave concerns about the behaviour of his mother and father when Brian returned home, and the fact that they didn't speak with Gabby's family or try and help, and that they lawyered up after a long phone call with Brian on August the 28th, 
And we'll hear more about that given the pending lawsuit filed by Gabby's family. But I can't say too much more about his home environment. But of course, his behaviour speaks volumes. It's instructive. And we saw it for ourselves on the body-worn camera footage. And that's important. We witnessed it for ourselves. It's not reported from anybody else, although we do have others corroborating what we saw on camera. For the female factors, the manual lists trusting, isolated, non-aggressive, rigid sex roles, traditional and romantic, accepts guilt for abuse, alcohol or drug abuse, low self-esteem, wants to please, vulnerable, dependent, nurturing. Now again, many of those traits talk to Gabby, with the exception of alcohol and drugs. Interestingly, just doing this exercise, it clearly identifies the victim Gabby and the abuser Brian. And I would say it is a little bit out of date, but these key things are important to recognise. In fact, the female factors probably describes most women, not all, but most, and certainly most who've been abused. The one that I see that jumps out a lot is people pleaser. And vulnerability, as I said, can mean so many different things. But the dependence, the nurturing, the non-aggressive, the trusting, being isolated, these traditional and romantic views, accepting guilt for abuse, I see these things repeat time and time again. And perpetrator psychology, well, there's a lot that I could say about it. But if the officers had read this manual, I can't help but think there may well have been a different outcome. Now, there's another line at the top of the diagram, and it reads, Institutions have tolerated, condoned, ignored, and justified violence against women. And I totally agree with this. Oftentimes, it happens at a subconscious level. Every year, with the International Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls Week in November, so many people come out from all over the world and pledge that violence against women and girls is unacceptable. And yet we accept it. Every day. Every day courts accept it, judges accept it, family courts accept it, police officers accept it. And we have to keep challenging that. We should not accept it. It's not inevitable and it is preventable. And so I cannot rule out religion and the way women are viewed in Utah as not having had a part to play in the male officer's response to Gabby and why they thought that they did a good job. And the fact that Captain Ratcliffe hasn't even commented on the misogyny, the sexism, the bro culture, the male chauvinism, etc., well, that's a glaring omission. And that also paints the picture. I'm also going to share with you more about what Officer Pratt said when he mentioned on interview with Captain Ratcliffe for the first time ever that he was concerned about Brian having more control over Gabby if he'd arrested Gabby and then if she had been bailed. Remember, I talked about this in the last episode. Before I highlighted a short quote of what he said, well, now I'm going to share with you the full quote of what he said. Now, this is documented on page 84 of the review, and I'm going to direct quote. This is what he said. So if he, Brian, is going to bail her out, is he not going to have more control over her now? Now we're out of money. Blame it on her because I had to bail you out. You know... And all it's going to do is put the power and dynamics more on him and in his favour where he's like, now we have to come back to court or video court. Now we don't have the money because I had to bail you out. Oh, we're in another fight. Go ahead and call the cops. How did that go for you last time? They hauled you off because I'm too cute because I said crisscross applesauce so they didn't arrest me. 
You know, as grown men, we laugh about how absurd it would be to think for him that he got away with it for being cute. He didn't get away with it for being cute. We saw his stupid bullshit. He got away with it on August 12th here because I couldn't charge him with a straight face. No judge would sign off on his incarceration on that day. The only person that could have gone to jail was Gabby. I didn't think it was right, you know. I would die on this hill if it was wrong of me to not arrest her. I still wouldn't have arrested her. Sorry. Brian was as much responsible or more for what happened on that day. She was at a disadvantage in every way. Emotionally, mentally, physically. And yes, she slapped him. He probably deserved every slap he got. Wow. That's so interesting for me that that's what he said on interview. Officer Pratt now seems to understand that there was a power imbalance. However, Officer Pratt did not understand what Brian was doing at the time. However, Officer Pratt did not understand what Brian was doing at the time. He didn't understand the power imbalance. And it's disingenuous to pretend otherwise after the fact. He bought into Brian's BS. Brian manipulated all of them And Officer Pratt did not see Brian's stupid BS to quote him, and to say otherwise here is fanciful. On page 96, on interview, Officer Pratt said that Gabby was trying to be equal in the relationship, and he said that Brian was a mental and emotional bully. That's interesting again for me. And yes, Brian was coercively controlling, abusive and manipulative. This is exactly what should have been explored at the time. And just to clarify, at no point was this articulated by any of the officers, nor was it recorded in the police report. And Captain Ratcliffe didn't even question or challenge Officer Pratt when he said this. And I would have advised the question, if you saw it at the police stop, why didn't you investigate Brian's behaviour or challenge his narrative and follow up with Gabby? Why didn't you take pictures of Gabby's injuries? But there was no follow-up or challenge from Captain Ratcliffe. What we all saw with our own eyes on camera was Officer Pratt repeatedly saying that Gabby was the primary aggressor and subsequently telling Brian that he was the victim of domestic abuse. Brian laughed in their faces when he said that. Brian was laughing at all of them, and he even joked about stealing the officer's radio. Not once did an officer challenge him and say, ''Why do you find it funny?'' Or why would you want to go to jail in her place? All four officers did not understand the power dynamics at play. This review is 99 pages long, and that's a lot of words on a lot of pages. It seems the responding officers didn't understand the predominant aggressor law, and neither does the reviewing officer, Captain Ratcliffe. That's the real learning that's been missed, in my opinion, and no amount of words or pages in a report will distract me from that. I have a laser focus in my work. And you see, sometimes you hit the target but miss the point. And that's what I believe happened with this review. And Captain Ratcliffe's full conclusion on page 43 illustrates this point to a fault, in my opinion. And I'm not going to get to the conclusion in full. That's next week. I want you to hear exactly what he wrote. And I also want to give you a very clear breakdown of my thoughts and my analysis about it. So I'm going to sign off at this point with a reminder that it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month 
And everything I'm doing in deconstructing Gabby's case is to shine a light on what went on and what went wrong and how to improve and protect future victims. And I have to call out BS when I see it or read it. This is exactly the time we should be speaking up for survivors and for victims who are no longer here to have their voice heard. And we have to be clear about the reality of domestic abuse and domestic abusers, even if it's difficult, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation. And you know I'm prepared to go there. And I'm taking my time deconstructing Gabby's case. Her voice deserves to be heard. Her voice needs to be heard. I owe it to Gabby and to her family and to all victims. Many of you have thanked me for that. And actually, your messages have kept me going. So please do keep messaging me on all the socials. Let me know your thoughts. And you can also leave a voicemail on the Crime Analyst website. Just go to www.crime-analyst.com. And I'm going to play a few of the incredible voicemails that I've received in a future episode. Some of the messages are just truly amazing. And of course, I'll seek your permission first before I do that. Okay, so definitely tune in for next week's episode. You will not want to miss it. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.